economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Luke Graham, producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. With us, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And finally, Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. All right, well, we have a special guest on today. We got Dr. Julia Norgard from Pepperdine University, and we had Julian in the past uh, speaking with us, so probably what was about six months ago, I think, or maybe it was a little longer. And so we're excited to have her on again because she talked about some of her other research, uh, including the dark net and, and uh, some work over in Africa that she did in Uganda and Rwanda. So got lots of different topics, not sure how many we're going to get to today, but we'll maybe we'll uh, sneak them in, weave them in in different ways. So Julia, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. All right. Let me give a little bit of a rundown here on Julia. She has her PhD from George Mason University. Uh, she was a PhD fellow at the Mercatus Center uh, and graduate lecturer. And her interest in applied micro and political economy, as well as law and economics and development. Dr. Norgard created and currently runs both the Pep Talks Research Seminar and Economics Reading Group there at Pepperdine. All right, so I had a little bit of exposure to the dark net. Maybe I've had more than I know about. Uh, that's why Russ, that scares net. me because there's a, <laughs> there's not a lot of innocuous experience with the dark net. Yeah, so I was, what I that know. is. Yeah, so I, I was an expert witness with a guy that manufactured uh, guns and had a deal with uh, a guy in Vegas, and okay. then there reputation got tarnished and it was um so i had to do a little bit of learning on what the darknet is and why it gets used and there was actually another case related to that too so where people were suing i'm not even sure how this one turned out or if it just drug out in the courts but uh they were they were actually suing the u.s government because they leaked some vital information and the darknet got it and they were being harassed and threats hmm. and stuff after that so that Cause them to have to relocate and lose their jobs. So anyway, I maybe your experience know than... sounds like it's very above board. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I, was, I, was, I haven't uh, and plan not to dive into the dubious stuff that goes on, but it'll be I think good for our listeners to uh, hear what you know about it and and your uh, research and experiences. So, what do you? What are your thoughts here? Well, I can go back to what it is if that's helpful. Yeah. And just kind of explain. So the dark net has been around since 2011, and it was actually created by the United States government to anonymize their searching in the Internet. And that with the advent or excuse me, it was even before 2011, but that with the advent of Bitcoin combined to create what we now think of as the dark net, which was the first dark net market called Silk Road. And this was created by a um, gentleman by the name of Ross Ulbricht. And he created this. And I believe in 2011, $1.2 million at the time was being transacted, 
transacted on the original Silk Road. Now, Ross Ulbricht got arrested and the site got shut down in 2013. But since then, there's been an explosion of darknet market sites. Now, the internet is a vast um, expanse where people communicate and trade. So what we know of typical internet that we interact on is called the surface web. So this is something where you're able to Google something. This is material that's both accessible and indexed. Then there's the deep web, which is something that is just private. So your private chats, your credit card information, your anything that I cannot just Google. If I wanted to uh, Google something of yours, Russ, that was private, that is, is going to be in the deep web because that is not accessible, but it is indexed. And the dark web is one level deeper. And the United States government created this monster, if you will, because it wanted to anonymize itself. And so it actually opened this technology up to the public and invited. And before actually cryptocurrency, there was much more nefarious communication going on before the advent of crypto. And that is what we know of as a lot of drug exchange. The vast majority of things exchanged on the darknet markets are drugs. Uh, there's also trafficking that goes on. There's also um, weapons trading and markets that go on. But something that I think is really fascinating, just the past few years, the darknet has really opened its doors and created a space for non-market transactions. And these exist in ProPublica has a, and so each of these browsers has a different name. So the most common browser that's used on the darknet is called Tor, which stands for the onion router. So if you have a dot onion in your URL, that means that this is a darknet site that you can use on Tor. So ProPublica, DuckDuckGo, Facebook, there's a hidden wiki that you can use on the darknet. So these are relatively innocuous things that are not traditionally associated with the dark net because dark net and dark net markets are often used hand in hand. But today there's been a lot more, well, I guess within the past few years, it's become much more popular. There are search engines on the dark net and these specific sites serve a lot of individuals who are in countries where regimes, for example, shut down Facebook um, the Facebook version that you're able to use claims that it is able to protect your data from the official Facebook company from looking at your data. Whether or not that's true um, is, is up for debate, but that was a little overview snapshot. I hope that's a good way to start us off. Yeah, so Julia, maybe you can clarify something for me. So I, I, get, I understand your, so the, the way that I've, heard is that basically you, you, what you call the deep web, this is like everything, like you said, that you can't find in the Google search or, you know, uh, through browsers, things like that, uh, through like ordinary means. Uh, and so that's everything from medical records that are stored on online databases to like academic articles that are put behind yep. paywall, stuff like that. But then you have this other thing called the, the dark web and is is what you're calling the dark web just a certain like group of different sites that exist on the deep web well how would you kind of define what the dark web is yeah and just if we're thinking volume wise the content on the web the vast majority of it is in the deep web right. so the dark net or dark web is a subset of the deep web 
And this is a space where you need a specific route. You need a specific browser and router for this type of communication. So for example, if you download Tor, what this does is it encrypts and it's not fully anonymous. There is a lot of a lot of pushback to the full anonymity that, for example, Tor is the most common browser, but Tor provides. Tor, I2P, and Freenet are, are, are the three probably main browsers on the darknet. But what this does is it changes the direction from which your information goes. So if you're searching for something on the surface web or even something that is in the deep web, your searching can be tracked. So although someone might not be able to grab your credit card information, they can tell that you went to chase.com or Bank of America or something like that. So what the darknet does is instead of taking your information from your computer and going directly to the server, it bounces that and unpeels various layers of your information. And that's why it's called the onion, because if this signal is intercepted at any single one of these nodes, you only have a piece of the puzzle of where it came from and where it's going. So each individual user in these darknet networks acts as a node through which others communicate. So one very serious criticism early on, and this is still the case, but it has gotten faster, is that it, this is very slow. This is very slow communication. Transaction costs are extremely high for transacting on here. And that is typically why it was in 2011 and still to today that illegal substances are traded on here. Most people do not want to incur the cost of downloading the browser, downloading a VPN, learning how to use Tor, getting Bitcoin or other cryptocurrency to sell toilet paper or something relatively innocuous on this site. So that is why they because of the, the high transaction costs, typically you see things that are associated with already existing high transaction costs. So that's typically why we see it in the legal space, illegal space. Yeah. And so I guess human trafficking, terrorist activities, uh, drugs, I mean, all of that's going to be pointed to as the bads. And I, I think you kind of mentioned this a little bit, but are there good activities that it's, you know, happy face, dark web, uh, <laughs> positive things to where people are actually utilizing it for that and and is the government as far as you know still utilizing it i assume they are just to track the illegal activity if nothing else but yes as far as i know the government is using it so to answer your question there are a lot of different services that these various platform providers with on the browsers provide so one of the things that a lot of these platforms do is they very much distance themselves from the darkest actions in the dark web. There have been many sites publicly that have come out and said, we do not engage in human trafficking. We do not engage in selling any type of weaponry. We do not engage in um, fake IDs because that puts a target on them for the government, for example. So many of these sites say we are basically drugs, illegal substances, um, counter not necessarily counterfeit IDs, but counterfeit materials only. So it definitely signals to the users that they might be a little less of a target from government, but it also is, it, it it's sort of a, a, a good faith effort on behalf of these, but it also decreases the prevalence that you're going to get 
taken down by law enforcement. Now, I have been a consultant on many teams that have really tried to target how human trafficking, specifically child trafficking on the darknet, and it's extremely, extremely difficult to do because many of these are invite only. A lot of these you have to have a huge reputation. So as far as research goes, it's extremely difficult to do this and intercept it. But there are many teams that are are doing their best to do this. And the prevalence scope and scale of this is just unknown because this is so anonymized. And even within the darknet community, human trafficking, especially um, child trafficking is very much looked down upon and not encouraged at all. So that being said, the good, or you could say legal parts of the darknet, actually there was this study done in April of 2020 where these researchers looked at over 20 different darknet sites right after COVID. And they said, hey, are these darknet sites stepping up to provide goods and services that people find really hard to find on the regular market, uh, namely PPE? And they actually found that darknet sites had them all over the place. There were hundreds of listings that listed PPE. That was the main um, product that they were selling. Masks, you could find N95. I was searching myself to see if this was a product that the darknet was providing and they immediately did. Now, of course, some of these are scams. Also, I think about 10% of it, the research researchers found was uh, what people claimed as vaccines. And through my own searching, you definitely knew this was a scam because one of the vendors even spelled vaccine wrong. So some that then various remedies were sold in them. But as far as I could tell, there were some very legitimate vendors selling a lot of N95 masks was the main thing that was being sold. Many different things that we would say, oh, why is that being sold on the dark net in the US are illegal in different countries. So you see books that are banned in various countries. Mm -hmm. You see um, counterfeit handbags that can get you in more or less trouble depending on what nation you're in. Um, there have been things, so when regimes fall, we see a lot more activity on the dark net. So things such as toilet paper and right, basic toiletries have been sold on the dark net because uh, individuals in countries that regimes have fallen have had struggled to buy those just where they are or on the regular internet. So that the dark net is very much a... They're, of course, not known for that. And as far as I know, the volume of that is very small because of the transaction costs we were talking about earlier. But there are things that uh, that are provided there. Um, and a lot of these services that are non, not the market sites, but for example, the hidden wiki, the, the Facebook on the Onion Router, DuckDuckGo, ProPublica, these are all information and communication sites that are not markets. Yeah. So that's going to be relatively benign. Okay. Well, this looks like a good spot for a break. I've got quite a few different questions to get into. I, I was You made me think like maybe places like Venezuela or other places that uh, regimes have fallen. Um, so yep. we might be able to get into some details that way. And then Justin especially is kind of leading the charge on, on Urbit. And we've done quite a few podcasts on it before. And I, I want to get his thoughts on how the dark web compares and contrasts to something like Urbit. So we'll be back in just a bit. Okay, sounds great. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place for people seeking freedom, justice, and human flourishing. We have a microeconomics course that's available to high school age students, uh, or at least pre-college, for only $200. 
Um, our next course starts June 27th, and we have a new course that starts about every eight weeks. So if you know somebody that might be interested in getting college-level credit for microeconomics, please contact Russ or Peter or Justin today. All right, welcome back. So we'll continue on here thinking about um, the dark web, and we've learned that there can be some good things that come about, uh, although it seems to be largely driven by whether the government is doing things that forces us to want to do things outside of their purview. Uh, seems to be where the conversation went when we think about Venezuela and maybe even Zimbabwe, where I was just at, uh, other places where there's uh, civil unrest. It kind of opens up a, a mechanism for communication and, and transactions to emerge. And um, I, I mentioned urban at the beginning because I couldn't help but think of uh, maybe there's some uh, similarities uh, in some ways, but differences in others. So Justin, give us a quick re recap of a few things related to Urbit here. So Urbit is an attempt to rewrite the current internet um, and also to recreate what it means for something to be a personal computer in the sense that everybody actually owns their own data and runs their own server. And so all communication is peer to peer. All your data lives on your computer. You don't access Facebook server and communicate with somebody else there. Um, and one of the things that's interesting about the Urbit paradigm is that since it's built this way, the, your data and your communications all are really, in a sense, privately owned in a way that they're not on the current clear web. And the Urbit thesis is we'll just let everybody own all their own data and communicate with themselves. And we'll just let whatever governance mechanisms happen to arise, arise. And we will uh, really let freedom and ownership go wherever it takes them. Emergent order. Yes, we'll see what orders emerge. <laughs> and so I know that you talked a little bit about uh, the emergent order and emergent governance on the dark web. So I was wondering if maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Sure. And as far as I know, just recently learning about Urbit, the big difference between them is Urbit is on the blockchain. And Tor and or traditional darknet sites are not on the blockchain. So there's a lot of similarities there and you can use blockchain um, in the traditional darknet. But I'd be curious to see if Urbit, I mean, that's a really fascinating proposal for sure. I'm, I'm interested to see how it would use a lot of energy for someone's personal computer. Now, if they were housing everything and it wasn't on the server, because servers obviously use a ton of energy and and produce a lot of heat. But anyway, side thought that I had <laughs> to your question about governance there, this was a very burgeoning space in the original darknet. And Ross Ulbricht, when he was actually on trial, made the argument. It was one of the few times in the history of our legal system that someone actually made the argument that they had actually made drug transactions and markets safer because of the governance mechanisms on his site and because there was a disentanglement from the person themselves and the username that they were using on the darknet. So these sites very much pride themselves and differentiate themselves by the governance mechanisms they use. As far as I've been studying this for almost 10 years now, there are sites that come and go all the time. There are, Alphabay has been hanging in there for quite a few years, for example. Um, but many of these sites eventually do get shut down. Some of them are here for years, but they oftentimes provide a 
internal and almost always internal governance mechanism where they have administrators. You can file a public complaint. You can file a private complaint. There are invite only sites that say after you have been verified at various places you, versus market, for example, is one of them where you have to prove that you are a verified a trustworthy either buyer or seller. And many of these sites, so Versus, for example, said we're going invite only because we have just been inundated with a very large number of individuals. We are not able to adequately serve our buyers and sellers on these on our platform. So that's one of the reasons why that we're going invite only, which is pretty curious. They were saying we want to preserve our reputation as a space that people feel safe transacting. So we, because of the volume that we're, the volume of users that's increasing so much, we need to bring that down in order to serve them and keep our reputation intact. Let me, uh, I got a question then. So, um, so you want to start up a buy sell service or something and bringing buyers and sellers, you set up a site. So it's, let's just for our listeners and my purposes, uh, you're setting up a website essentially. Um, but you've set it up on the dark web, which has uh, is open access to anybody who has uh, that particular server and that particular coding ability. And so they set up a site and then now they've created a kind of a voluntary private association where there's an administrator to the site. And maybe it's three or four people that run the site. Um, is that what you're getting at with the governance mechanisms? So that's very close. So we have these different browsers. Tor, for example, the Onion router is you download that on your computer and then you're able to access the darknet there. So the platform providers, there are even guides on the darknet that say, hey, if you want to start your own darknet market, here's how to do it. And so you create a platform. You can think of Tor as Google Chrome and you can think of Alphabet or ASAP market as an Amazon so you are creating this platform that, and it's unclear how many man managers they have of these sites. But as far as I know, in Australia, the Australian government actually found these specific individuals and said, you need, they threatened them and said, you need to let us now be the administrators of this site, <laughs> or they threatened certain Jail. legal uh, ramifications. Yes. So they, the Australian government, as far as I know, was masquerading on these platform provider managers for months, as far as I know. Mm. And so that obviously has nefarious means. I don't believe the United States government is allowed to do that. So the Australian government was going a little rogue, though, but researchers were all over that. These various different platforms are able to decide how they want to run their site, what goods and services they want to provide, how they are monitoring it, how people are engaging with each other and individuals. And you can find as there is a market for markets, of course. And so there are just a myriad of different ways to communicate. There's a lot of similarities, but many of them have gone to invite only to preserve their reputation or to presumably provide even more nefarious goods and services. Mm -hmm. So nobody uh, really using the invite mechanism. It's it you are creating kind of a private club, and so I and I suppose they can uh, maintain anonymity within their group, just depending on you know who a person is. If they're you know doing drugs or human trafficking or something, the transaction can be somewhat anonymous. But I don't know. That's interesting if they're able to preserve that. 
So, uh, so as far as, or just as far as preserving your own personal anonymity, the individuals on these sites that are most susceptible to having their personal information revealed are the buyers. Because if you purchase something, you have to give somebody a name and an address. Now, if you're savvy, you will use a fake name and a PO box, but many people feel very comfortable having these things delivered to their Airbnbs. Hmm. And that's actually fairly common. A lot of people use this if they travel, if they're not connected to a local drug market, they will have um, drugs in the dark night shipped to their Airbnb when they get there. Hmm. So with regards to who has the most risk of having their personal information revealed and who is at most risk from law enforcement, law enforcement is not interested for the most part in intercepting a transaction of a few grams of, of um, illicit substance, but they are interested in targeting the vendors and they are interested in targeting the platform providers. So those individuals, the way that the information is structured, just revealing one's personal information, it actually, the system is such that those who are most at risk are the least likely that anyone's going to be interested in their personal information. Do you think that uh, the seller is usually the platform owner or so the, rather than the Amazon example, unless Amazon's selling their own goods and services, but uh, they're not really brokering people. They're probably just selling their own, whatever they're selling, uh, their so illegal thing. So actually, platform providers want to attract as many reputable vendors as they possibly can. And platforms even have ways to communicate with each other and transfer buyers and sellers' reputations from one to the other. Because as you hmm. can imagine, it's very costly if you're starting on a whole new platform to say, oh, now I need to build this reputation. I need to get more five-star ratings. I need to sell more goods and services. So the platforms themselves say, we will allow you to transfer um, hmm. via encrypted verification that you are this specific seller, that you are this specific buyer. So that's a way that they want to say, hey, we have these very reputable vendors here and they will actually advertise on their behalf. So, and that, I, that would be interesting to see how that works, but there is the platform, of course, takes a cut from each transaction and each one of the platforms does it differently, but they advertise and laud various vendors and I'm not sure what the compensation is for that, but it definitely exists. So then there is multiple platforms. So there's competition among them to keep their oh, bro yes. brokering fees low. And oh, so, yes. it, so it is very similar, more so than an individual seller selling their product. Okay. Yep. And it's actually, I mean, there are these very large, prominent markets, but because they are so susceptible to being shut down and sometimes it's from within. Sometimes there is nefarious action from within. Sometimes law enforcement happens, but there is very fierce competition for these. And they differentiate themselves by the type of uh, private governance mechanisms they provide, by the type of goods and services they sell. Hmm. Wow. So Russ uh, is like, I know what I'm doing this afternoon. I'm speechless do looking a little, for my other colleagues. Do a little more to, digging. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So Julia, I'm curious. One of the, so it sounds like a, a lot of the governance on these, uh, you know, different platforms is due to reputational mechanisms. Uh, I'm curious because, you know, buying and selling illicit substances in real life um, also relies or has access to reputational mechanisms to a certain degree. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of times the enforcement in real life comes down to violence. 
uh, yep. for, for those sorts of like, you know, buying and selling markets. But on the darknet, I don't imagine there is a whole lot of enforcement due to violence. Uh, I could be wrong. Maybe, maybe that sort of thing does happen. So I'm wondering how it is that the dark web can operate if they have reputation as a mechanism of enforcement, but the in-person markets have reputation and violence as a mechanism of enforcement. Uh, what What is it that allows the darknet to compete when it loses access to that enforcement mechanism? Yep, absolutely. And this is what, what you're discussing right now, the fact that there is no violence typically associated with the darknet because of the anonymity component is what the originator of the darknet markets argued in court. He was saying, hey, there's not this violence component. So the yes, there is no violence and there's also no third party recourse that can be taken. You cannot go to the cops and say, hey, this person on the darknet scammed me. So that is why these platforms are very protective of the way that they monitor various systems. So one thing that they do is, and it's hard to prevent an exit scam, but these platforms do the best that they can with various ease of transfer of reputable vendors. They also charge fees. They're right. They're trying to attract vendors, but not attract the vendors that are scammers. So they mm-hmm. do charge charge fees to be a vendor on their site for the most part. That's one way that they do it to make it just more expensive to be engaging in all these exit scams. Also, they provide forums for individuals to communicate about various vendors and buyers and sellers, and they call each other out fairly often. So their enforcement mechanism is completely in-house, and their ability to do that is the main way that they're able to differentiate themselves from others. And there have clearly a... Um, anonymity breach would be the number one rule not to break as a platform provider. So their ability to keep, especially their vendors information anonymous and any type of specific tag that would indicate who that person is in real life, very anonymous. So they are completely dealing with this in-house. They have administrators, monitors, and they will, you can even read on the forums where the moderator will come in and say, hey, what's the problem here? And you will see it in real time where they're debating, oh, okay, this person scammed me. Okay, well, we're gonna kick, we verified that, we're gonna refund your money and kick them off the platform. So there's only so much they can do, but the fact that they're competing very largely on this margin and these markets are up and thriving and have been for over a decade really is a testament to the fact that they're able to do this and make people feel comfortable. However, they are shut down readily um, at times. And some of these platforms have a very short lifespan. Um, I, I hate to make the, the government's argument here, uh, but uh, <laughs> isn't it the case that you actually uh, can procure things like um, an assassination on the, um, on the dark web, not necessarily on any of the sites that are reputable, um, but that does seem to be where something that can be purchased on the dark web. And I think actually it's something that even Albrecht was accused of in, um, in the trial that that charge, I think might've gotten dropped. Um, and so this is just to say that even though uh, on any particular platform that you're discussing, uh, I'm sure some kind of arbitration or, you know, gatekeeping is in place to, to prevent the recourse to violence. Um, is it really true that it's, it's totally peaceful and, and violence is something that doesn't exist on the, the dark web? So, of course not. There's, <laughs> I mean, to the extent that these individuals 
are not actually meeting them each other in real life. There is not, right? You don't actually have to meet up with this person in real life. So as far as the violence per transaction, it is extremely diminished relative to transacting in person. Now that, as far as I know, is lower in the darknet space. And I'm not an expert on this by any means, but it's extremely difficult to find that there's actually evidence of hitmen, for example, being hired. Now, I've read sources that say, yes, that very much happens, and here's some information. And I've read some sources that say, no, that is just folklore. I've come across sites myself that offer um, hacking services, and this is very, it sounds very scary, but they'll say, it, it literally was, the line item was, ruin someone's reputation. Here's how much it is, or cause them to lose their job. <laughs> so presumably these people were providing hacking services to um, individuals. Now, how much of, how many of those are scams? It's very hard to tell. And also how would someone verify whether or not they actually carried out the service also is very, very difficult to tell. But those are, again, very, very, very frowned upon, obviously, um, even within this illegal space. Many of these individuals say, we do not, we condemn violence. We do not want to be involved in this at all. We are not involved with the sale of arms. We are not involved in human trafficking. And and as I mentioned before, primarily, presumably, that is because they don't want to put a target on their backs. But the vast majority of this, as far as I can tell, happens in private chats versus a publicly available platform. Here is what we offer for these various services for Hitman is what you were referring to. So that, of course, is encrypted and anonymized. So it's difficult to ascertain what's going on there, but that is as far as I know. Great. Well, this looks like a pretty good spot to bring things to an end. I do have kind of a final question for you to sum up. Um, what I'm hearing is that this, this can't really be stopped, um, similar to other things like maybe even Bitcoin on the blockchain or whatever. It's, it's not really stoppable. Um, is that a fair statement? Yep, absolutely. You have to shut down the internet. Yeah in order to stop this. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so just um, ending on a cheery. Up yeah. Well, <laughs> it, you know, it's, it's cheery from our, you know, private markets standpoint that there is, um, there's various things emerging with technology that do allow us to stay outside of the government. And, and for the most part, we've got a pretty good government in the United States, but you know, when you look around the world, uh, there's plenty of other oppressive governments and, so this is kind of encouraging, I think, that uh, they could overcome these transaction costs if they happen to live in a country that doesn't have a good government and yeah. um, the economy can, can march on. So, Absolutely. And the prevalence of these search engines, these Wikipedia sites um, are very much encouraging for that and the sale of, of basic goods and services on these sites. So I think definitely a very sil serious silver lining to this relatively dark topic. Yeah. All right. Well, great. Well, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, y'all. All right. Well, this has been a production of the Gorton Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. A five-star rating helps other people find us. And otherwise, be sure to pass this podcast and other podcasts along to your friends and family that might like to listen to them. 
Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.